Good morning, everyone. What a joy to be with you today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. I bring you warm greetings from Christ Fellowship Bible Church in St. Louis, Missouri. A little warmer than it is here, um, but but warm greetings, warm greetings. My wife and I left yesterday morning after taking the kids to different places, and we both left without a coat. And uh, probably an unwise th- thing to do coming to Iowa in February without a coat. Um, but it, temperatures were a little warmer there than than they are here. But thanks for bringing the warmer weather for us for that. We're, we're so thankful. It is my joy today to open up the Word of God, and the topic that has been assigned to me is why a husband matters. I'd like you to take your Bible and go with me to Ephesians chapter 5. And as you're turning there to Ephesians chapter 5, you have notes there that you probably saw that you can follow along and maybe jot down a couple of things. And I I give you notes that are a few pages long because there's so much that I want to say, much more that, that I would love to say longer than an hour, but... But uh, So I put it in the outline there for you, so uh, I won't deal with all of that, but, but uh, that'll give a, a little bit of an outline and a framework for us for the morning. Ephesians 5, follow with me as I begin reading in verse 25. This is the word of the Lord, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the power of the word of God. We thank you, Lord, that you have given clarity in the word of God. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you regenerate those whom the Father has chosen. And we also praise you that you sanctify true believers. You conform us more to the image of Christ. We pray that as we look into your word that you would show us Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The story is told in one of the Greek histories of a wife, a wife of one of the generals of King Cyrus. He was the ruler of Persia, and this wife of one of the generals was accused of treachery, and she was condemned to die. At first, the husband had no idea what was going on, that his wife had been sentenced to die. But as soon as he got word of the matter, he rushed into the palace of the king. He burst into the throne room of the king, and he threw himself on the floor at the feet of the king. And here's what the husband said. Oh, my Lord Cyrus, take my life instead of hers. Let me die in her place. Well, the the, the records tell us in the history books that King Cyrus, who... Well, he was a pretty uh, sensitive man, and he was touched by such a kind offer from this husband and the sacrificial request for him to die instead of his wife in her place. And King Cyrus said, a love like this 
should not be spoiled with death. So he freed her and he allowed her to go free. And as the husband and the wife were walking out of that palace together, amazed at what the king had done, they were walking away happily and cheerfully. And the husband said to his wife, did you notice? Did you notice how kindly the king was looking at us when he gave you the pardon? And the wife responded by saying, I had no eyes for the king. I only saw the man who was willing to die in my place. I was looking at him. I was watching him. I was observing him. Oh, husbands, what a lesson. What a lesson for us that you and I must love our wives like this. And the ultimate example for us is Christ who loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husband, you are to love your wife by loving her sacrificially, tenderly, patiently, persistently. Husband, think about this for a moment. You win your wife by loving your wife. Husband, you delight your wife by dying daily for your wife. This is love, and we read about this all through the Word of God. Old Testament, New Testament, what love is. It is a choice. It is a volition. It is an act of the will to give myself to another for their benefit, for their good, regardless of how they respond. That's love. I love how 1 John chapter 4 tells us about this kind of love. Love is from God, 1 John 4, 7. Love is from God, meaning it's sourced in God. God is the the genesis. He is the giver. He is the origin. He is the ultimate one who is the one of love. When we talk about this great love of God, that brings us right to the love of Christ. The love of Christ, just ponder with me for a moment. Let's just dwell on this. The love of Christ is an attractive love. It is an attractive love. And we might say that the love of Christ is an eternal love. As we just heard about from Revelation 19, the love of Christ toward his people will never end. It'll never fail. It'll never diminish. It'll never rust. It'll never grow old. It'll never fluctuate. The love of Christ is an initiating love. Praise God for that. The love of Christ is also a sovereign love. A sovereign love. A glorious love. A kingly love. A royal love. And it is a sweet love. And when we talk about a sweet love that Jesus has for you and for me, who are believers in Christ, that brings us to the glorious realm of what we just heard, that we have a bridegroom. We have a bridegroom. And he is none other than Jesus Christ. What a great bridegroom who initiates love toward us. What a great bridegroom who serves us sacrificially, constantly, persistently. What a great bridegroom who sacrifices for us in love. What a great bridegroom who protects us by his power, by his wisdom, by his care all the time. Praise God that we have a bridegroom who loves. He loves. I want to talk about that today. A bridegroom who loves. The question before us in the outline and the topic of this is why husbands matter. And I want to talk about why husbands matter, but even as a little bit of a footnote before we jump in, I must say that husbands matter for our children. We have children here, many children in this church. Husbands matter for our children. And let's just say for a brief moment, they matter for our boys. They matter for our boys. Why? Because our boys must grow up to be men. They must grow up to be young men, men of God, men who fear the Lord. And that doesn't come automatically because the child has such a wise heart. We must teach and instruct 
our boys. And not only must we teach and instruct them, we have to show and model and exemplify that in our lives. So we cannot just preach to our boys that they have to be men and then unpreach it with our lives. We have to teach and model and exemplify that for our boys in the home. And to be sure, husbands matter for our girls. They matter for our girls so that they would look for this kind of a man in a husband one day. But why does a husband matter? Let's just sort of zoom out for a little bit. Big picture. Why does a husband matter? Well, as we saw in session one, a husband matters to God because God designed the role and the function of a husband. God designed it. God ordained it. God commands it in the word. So it matters because God is the one who gave the instructions. It also matters to man. A husband matters to man so that man would obey God and fulfill the obligation that God has given. A husband matters third to the wife. To the wife because she needs a leader. She needs a leader and she must submit to that head. A husband matters next to the children, so they would see the love of Christ enfleshed in an exclusive, passionate, serving, humble man who leads in the home. Husband matters. Oh, yes, a husband matters. Not only to God, to man, to wife, to children, but a husband matters to the church. To the church, so as to disciple and mentor others and following Christ in the community of believers. Husbands matter to the church. And let's just zoom out even more. Husbands matter to society. Because of the dearth and the shamefulness of our world of godly manhood, the lack of men who love and lead in the home rightly, our society needs biblical men. To live it out and to proclaim it forth. Oh, a husband matters. Now, you have your Bible open in front of you to Ephesians 5, which is what I read a couple of minutes ago. And before we look into chapter 5, which we're going to do as we talk about the role of a husband and why a husband matters, I want you to go back to chapter 1 with me because if we're going to talk about biblical husbanding, we would completely fail if we just start in chapter 5. Ephesians doesn't start in chapter 1 with God saying, Husbands, here's the checklist of things that you've got to do. Thankfully, the Lord doesn't do that. We have to understand, you see it there in your outline, the prerequisite. What must be present in order for you as a man of God to fulfill your obligations before God and to your wife? What is the prerequisite? What has to happen? Well, chapters 1 to 3 is all about the work of God, the salvation of God, the gospel of God. And you say, I know that, but hold on. Chapters 1 to 3 is not about what you do for God. It's what God has done for you. Chapter 1, we see in verses 3 to 14, the glorious work of the triune God. God the Father chose you all to the praise of the glory of his grace. God the Son died for you and redeemed you and shed his blood for you, lavished his rich grace upon you, all to the glory of his grace. And then in verses 13 and 14, God the Holy Spirit has regenerated you. He has saved you. He has sealed you for eternity to the praise of his glory. You didn't do anything. God did everything. If that isn't true of you, you can't live out chapter 5, what we're going to talk about. If, if chapter 1 of the gospel of God working in you and saving you has not happened to you personally or to anyone, then chapter 5, trying to live out the obligations of a biblical husband, it's not just that it won't happen, it can't happen. He's not plugged into the power source. Chapter 1 is the beauty of the work of God in saving his own people for his glory. And chapter 2 even further elaborates on that, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, verses 1 to 3. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, made you alive, united to Christ. By grace you're saved. You didn't do anything. God did everything. He did it all. He saved you all by sovereign working and initiative. 
chapter 3, Paul's overwhelmed with this. He's overwhelmed that he gets to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ. What is the gospel? The gospel is the sovereign, initiating, glorious, divine work of God in loving and saving sinners for his glory, eternally, all to the praise of his great name. That's the prerequisite. Because then you turn to chapter 4, therefore, I implore you, I exhort you, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. If chapters 1 to 3 is the prerequisite, then chapters 4 to 6 is the practice. Now, look in your outline here because there's a little bit more detail that I just want to fly through by way of overview before we come to chapter 5. Husbands, remember the context of Ephesians chapter 5. Paul in chapter 4, after dealing with the gospel of how God saved you in chapters 1 to 3, he begins in chapter 4 by saying, Christian, you need the church. You need the church. You need the oversight of the church. You need the protection of the church. You need the care of the church. You need unity in the church. That's chapter 4. And then toward the end of chapter 4, Paul says, Christians, you need Christian holiness. You need obedience. You need to put off the sinful desires, be renewed by putting in the word of God, and then put on godly virtues in its place. You have to do that. That's Christian living. And then in chapter 5, after talking about those who were living in the darkness and you are not living that way as a believer, you're now light in the Lord. Paul says to the church, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled, be controlled with the Spirit of God. Everything that Paul's going to say, beginning in verses 19 to the end of chapter 5 and even into chapter 6 is fleshing out what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What does it mean to be controlled by the Spirit? What does it mean for a Christian to live a life, even in the context of the home, controlled by the Holy Spirit? So Paul is not just beginning Ephesians saying, let's talk about marriage, husbands. Here's what you have to do. He begins very carefully, very wisely with gospel. Is foundation. That's the energy and the source and the power that you need. And, man of God, that's the power that you have. So what I'm going to say for the remainder of the time, yes, it's difficult, yes, it's convicting, but you can do it. You can live it out for the glory of God. Spirit-filled living. I love how Paul, even in a parallel in Colossians 3, says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Oh, I love that. And then he continues to talk about family matters and domestic matters even after that. And we could talk today about how a husband ought to protect, Genesis chapter 3. We ought to talk about how a man should worship God from 1 Samuel chapter 2. We could talk about how a husband ought to praise and affirm his wife, Proverbs 31. We could talk about how a man ought to be committed to his wife for life, Luke chapter 16. We could talk about how a man must be exclusive as a one-woman man in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We could talk about how a man should be tender toward his wife in 1 Peter chapter 3. How a man should pastor his wife. All those would be like multi-part series that would be appropriate. But I, I don't have the time to deal with all of that. But for us in Ephesians chapter 5, we want to look at why a husband matters. God's blueprint for husbands. You see the outline there and the main headings that I want to give you. What is the blueprint for husbands to show why a husband matters? Husband, let me give you these four commands. Love, uh, number one, lead your wife. Number two, love your wife. Number three, live the gospel. And number four, learn your wife. Let's see the blueprint that God gives for biblical husbands. Now, your Bible is open now to Ephesians 5. Follow with me. Let me begin in verses 22 to 24 with this first divine command, this blueprint from God to you and me, men, as husbands. Number one, it is to lead your wife. Look at verse 22. This will be dealt with more, I'm sure, later, but 
just for our purposes here, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Here's the main phrase that I want to deal with here, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Okay, ponder with me this situation. Imagine with me a man by the name of Harrison. He, comes, he becomes a Christian out of a, out of a nominal Muslim home from England. His dad was a workaholic, living in the city of London. Harrison really didn't know what leadership was because he really never saw it in his dad. Before he went off to university, his mom and his dad got divorced. Harrison and his wife Darcy have been married for some time, and they are members of a good Bible church. But Harrison finds himself tempted to fear, tempted to fear. Well, what does that mean? Well, for Harrison, he doesn't want to take decisive action on different matters because he wonders if he's going to be wrong. He, he wonders if he's going to make a fool of himself. He wonders if he's going to be mocked. He wonders if he's going to be outsmarted by his wife, Darcy. And so he knows he ought to lead, but he doesn't. What would God say? What would God say to Harrison? What would God say to you and me? Well, I think of it like the word of God tells us in the book of Joshua to lead courageously. In the Torah, the first five books of Moses, we ought to lead humbly like Moses did. We ought to lead communicatively like Paul did with the churches. Oh, he communicated his love toward the believers. We ought to lead protectively like Nehemiah did, protecting the people of God. Ponder, just real quick, before we come to Ephesians here specifically on leading the wife, ponder the book of Joshua, just the structure of the book of Joshua. I know you know it well, but in chapter 1, Joshua leads the people of Israel in the word of God. God tells him, don't let this book depart from your mouth. Leadership begins with us being in the word. And then in chapter 4, God, through Joshua, reminds the people of God of the power of God. Don't be afraid. We're going to cross the river. We're going to go into the promised land. Joshua reminds them of the promises of God. That's leadership. In chapter 5, Joshua falls prostrate before the angel of the Lord. That's leadership. In chapter 7, Joshua radically kills sin, actually killing a man and his wife and his family because of their sin, Achan. And then in chapter 23, Joshua leads by reviewing the history and the faithfulness of God and all that God has done. That's leadership, by remembering what God has done. And then in chapter 24, Joshua leads when he says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then he says, Put away all the foreign gods and cling to the Lord. These are great descriptions of leadership just from Joshua and his example. Bernard, Bernard comes home from work. Maybe you can relate to this, and Bernard is wiped out. Long day, it's been a long week. He's exhausted, and rightly so. He's been working hard, and he knows that he ought to love his wife, but he's exhausted. And he wants to talk to his wife, but he begins to fall asleep. And he wants to love and invest in the children, but he just wants to take a nap before dinner. He's exhausted and he just wants to check out. What would be said to Bernard? What would be good, wise counsel? It's remembering Ephesians 5, verse 23. Look at it there in your Bible. Do you see what God says? The husband is the head of the wife. Do you hear that? Now, you're well taught. You know this. God doesn't say, husbands, you ought to be your wife's head. He doesn't say that. You are. You are the head. You are the leader. You are the head. The question for men of God is not, are you the head? The question is, are we good or bad? Are we faithful or unfaithful? Are we obedient or disobedient as the heads, the leaders, of the home. Well, how, 
how, how does this look? If we are to be godly heads of the wife, what does this look like? Well, we ought to lead with humility. One other way that we can lead is through repentance. Husbands can lead with courage. Husbands ought to lead in worship. Husbands ought to lead in time management and ensuring that the priorities in the home are right. Husbands ought to lead in pursuing Christ. And you and I hear that and we think, well, that's convicting. It's just convicting, even that. But don't we have a great champion? Don't we have a great leader? Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 10, there is one who is your leader and he is Christ. Remember Isaiah chapter 19, verse 20, we read that God will send a Savior and a champion. He is our Savior, praise the Lord. Aren't we thankful that in Revelation 7, verse 17, we read that the Lamb will guide His people to springs of water. What a great leader we have in our shepherd. Let us look to Christ as our leader. Husbands, lead your wives. Now, you're in Ephesians. Keep your finger there, but just real quick, go back to Mark 10. Go back to Mark chapter 10. And I, and I want to take you to a familiar section for a few minutes here, because in Mark 10, beginning in verse 42 to 45, Jesus will teach about true leadership. And this is good for us. It's good for me. It's good for you. It's good for all of us, because our culture completely takes it and flips it on its head. But it's not just the culture out there. It's our sinful tendencies in our own hearts. Look at Mark 10, verse 42. What does Mark say? This is what our, our Savior has said to his disciples. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, verse 42, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. What is the first lesson? Of true leadership, number one, it must reject domineering authority. It must reject domineering authority. Jesus, though, says in verse 43, but it's not this way among you. That's how the Gentiles, that's how the non-believers lead. Verse 43, but it's not this way among you. Here's another lesson for leadership. Biblical leadership, loving and leading and serving your wife rightly as the leader and head, displays an otherworldly sweetness. It's not this way among you like it is in the world. The world has their way of worldly, domineering, tyrant leadership. It's not this way among you. There is an otherworldly sweetness to biblical leadership. Well, verse 3, or verse 43, Jesus said, It's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. What is it that marks godly leadership? It's when a man pursues meek servanthood. Doesn't mean weak, meek. The strength of a man is the self control of serving his wife as the head. And then, verse 45, look at how we read in Mark 10, 45, the great example, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So, this is a great picture, a, a template of leadership that Jesus gives. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, you are the head of your wife. You are the head of your wife sometimes wonder if the opposite of a gospel-centered husband is a comfortable husband. It's easy to be comfortable. It's easy to be passive. It's easy to just kind of be okay with the current status of the home, kind of the status quo of the home, prone to passiveness, glued to the, the, the couch more than engaging his family. That's easy. That's comfortable. And yet God calls men to be active leaders who lead well by leading humbly, 
and who lead well by leading as Christ. Our champion has led us. So the first blueprint for marriage as to why a husband matters, we see right here in Ephesians 5, 22 to 24, is husbands must lead their wives. Husbands, you can think on this, pray on it. It's one thing to hear it, but we want to be hearers and doers of the word, don't we? Lord, where can I grow in my leadership? What are some of the points where I am leading to the praise of God's glory? But where can I grow? What are those areas where I can be a more faithful head, a a more humble leader, more Christ-like in my leading of my wife? So, number one, lead your wife. But now, number two, in Ephesians 5, flip back there if you haven't yet. Ephesians 5, 25 to 30, husbands, love your wife. Love your wife. And look at just verse 25 with me. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. And he gave himself up for her. So, why does a husband matter to God? Because the role of a husband is taking the image... Of God, who is the husband toward his covenant people. The book of Hosea talks about that. Ponder the enormity of the divine love of God towards you. Ponder that. Ponder the reality that our God has so strongly, passionately, persistently, gloriously loved his people. What a great God. I meet often with individuals for biblical counseling. I'll change the name for one. Here's an illustration. Connor. Connor knows the gospel, and he loves the gospel. He loves the gospel. He's been on missionary trips, and he's helped Uh, a missionary that the church had in the country of Germany in the teaching of the word of God, a very knowledgeable man, a very equipped and capable man. And yet Connor finds himself as the husband in his home, he finds himself being quite irritable toward his wife. He, he, He finds himself being sharp, cutting, and even quite disrespectful in the way that he speaks to her. And one of the ways that it shows itself is he can be critical of her. He can be a little judgmental toward her. He can nag her for the things that she's not doing well, meaning she's not meeting his expectations. Now, if you're sitting with Connor across the table or on the couch, and you're hearing this from Connor, he's a member of your church, he knows the Lord, he knows the gospel, he's a faithful man of God, and he reveals this to you, what does Connor need? He needs to see Christ. And he needs to see the love of Christ for him, and then Connor needs to be awed and amazed and gripped afresh by the love of Christ, and then exhorted, take what you've received and now love your wife the way that your bridegroom has loved you. Anyone can take love, but it's much harder to give love. And isn't that what love is? Love is giving. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. Galatians 2.20, Christ loved me and he gave himself. Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself. So husbands, God calls you to love your wife, to give of yourself for your Wife, let me just comment so quickly on some of the verses here in Ephesians 5. Number one, husbands, this is your duty. It's your duty. And the reason we know it's your duty is because verse 25 is a command. It's not an option. God is not requesting a poll. He's giving an imperative command. Love. This is our duty. 
Second, if you see there at the end of verse 25, the example of love. We are to love our wives as, just as, even as Christ loved the church. Third, we see the purpose of love. Well, what's the purpose? You see it there in verse 26 and 27. So that he might sanctify the bride, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Oh, to, to, to sanctify, to present the, bri- the bride as holy, to, to make her blameless, so that his life work would be to pastor his wife well. So that on that day when they stand before the Lord in glory, here's my life's work. To love, to sanctify, to shepherd, to pastor the bride that you have given to me. What a purpose that God has given to husbands. Love your wife to make her holy. And then we see the sacrifice. The sacrifice, look at verses 28 to 30. Husbands, love your wives even as your own bodies. We're pretty good at passionately loving ourselves. When I'm hungry, I get food. When I'm thirsty, I get a drink. If I'm tired, I go to sleep. We are good at that with the same passion that we already have in thinking about and caring for ourselves. Verse 28, husband, love your wife like you care for yourself. Because whoever loves his own wife loves himself. 29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but you nourish and you cherish it as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body. You know what I love about this plan of God and this command of God to me and to you as husbands to love our wives. What I love about it is the, the command to love is not followed by 35 or so, here's what you have to do. Well, there are commands in the word, of course there are. But the main command is look to your Savior. Look to him. Look again and again. And tomorrow morning and then the next day. Look to your Savior. How does Jesus, how does Jesus love us? I mean, we can't talk about loving our wives as Christ loved the church without gazing upon and being astonished afresh by the love of Christ. And you have this in your outline there. Number one, the love of Christ for his people is an unconditional love. It is a love that is unilateral. It's, it's a one-way love. It doesn't, it, it doesn't demand that you love him first. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The love of our great God toward us. Second in your outline, you see it there. It's a volitional love. Right? As Christians, we don't live by how we feel. Amen. We live by truth and what we know. To be right. Now, sometimes everything in me is screaming. I don't feel like this. I'm tired. I, I, I deserve this. Everything in me, my emotions and my feelings, which so often can lead us astray. It's a volitional love. I know I need to do this, and I'm going to make a choice even when it's hard. Third, it's an intense love. Oh, that glorious verse in John 13, the context of Jesus washing their feet. And it said that Jesus loved those who were his own to the max, to the end. With an intense love, with a perfect love, with a passionate love. Fourth, Christ loves his people with an unending love. What can separate you from the love of God? Anything? Paul goes on to list all those different possibilities. Nothing. Fifth, the love of Christ toward us is an unselfish love. He didn't remain in heaven, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And then later on in Philippians 2, he was even obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What an unselfish love. 
And number six, it's a purposeful love, as we just saw here in Ephesians 5. It is a sacrificial love. Even when we were enemies, even when we were ungodly, even when we were sinners, and we were hating God and running away from God, we lived in the darkness, we loved our darkness and our sin. Christ died for us. What a sacrificial love. And... To be sure, number eight in your outline, you see it there. It is a manifested love. Aren't we thankful that we have a Savior who actually communicates with us that he loves us? He tells us. He shows us. He prays for us. It is a manifested, obvious love. So husbands, love. We were to sit with your wife. Would she affirm unequivocally that she knows that you love her? If we were to sit with your wife, would she say with the Shulamite in Song of Solomon, I am my my beloved's and his desire is for me. Would your wife say that? Would she affirm that? Does she know that? So, my brothers, love your wife. Love your wife. We see the blueprint that God has for the husband. We see it in the word of God. It is to lead, number one. It is to love your wife, number two. Now in your outline, you see it. Number three, husbands, live the gospel. Live the gospel by the way that you treat your wife. And we see it right here in verses 31 and following. The husband, or pardon me, verse 31 of Ephesians 5, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. That's what it refers to, Christ in the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her own husband. Husbands, Can I just remind you of this simple truth that your home is not only a refuge for relaxation. And it it should be a place of rest. It should be. But your home is also a context to serve. When you and I get home at the end of a day and we turn off the car and we're tired. Our opportunity To minister, we might say, is just beginning. We're tired. We're weak. We might not feel like we have much in us. And yet our opportunity to serve in the context of our home is beginning. Why do I say that? Because of Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man has come to serve and to give his life as a ransom. A husband who dies to himself each day so that he might live for his wife each day is a glorious demonstration. It is a walking portrait. It is a visible image of the saving gospel of Christ's love. Isn't it amazing? You see it there in your Bible, and and we read verse 31 earlier from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and how Paul quotes it again here, and he's quoted it in, in Matthew, and we also see it elsewhere in the book of Mark. Four times this verse from Genesis is mentioned. Leaving father and mother, joining to the wife, becoming one flesh. Paul clarifies verse 32, this is a mystery. Of course this is the plan of God. But all along, the institution of marriage was to be a neon sign pointing to something greater. Our, our marriage is not the ultimate goal. Oh, it's important. I'm not minimizing the institution of marriage. But it's not the ultimate. The ultimate is for your marriage to be a walking, living, breathing portrait of the gospel for all to see. For all to see. This mystery is great. But I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
So how you communicate to your wife. Is, is that a good demonstration of the gospel and how Christ communicates to us? How you forgive one another preaches the gospel. How you serve your wife preaches the gospel. How you protect your wife preaches the gospel. How you rejoice together with your wife preaches the gospel. How you worship and lead your wife in worship and prepare with her to worship God preaches the gospel. How you show affection to your wife preaches the gospel. How you remain exclusive to your wife preaches the gospel. How you spend your money preaches the gospel. How you honor one another in the home preaches the gospel. Husbands, this is so vital for us that we understand that our children are watching, our church is watching, your coworkers are watching, the neighbors might be watching, the unbelieving world is watching. You love your wife, and it's different. You love her, and it's different. Why? Because our marriage is not about me. And our marriage isn't even about her. Our marriage is about Christ. Let me tell you about him. Live the gospel. Fourth, in your outline, not only lead your wife, love your wife. Number three, live the gospel with your wife. But for the time that remains, go with me from Ephesians just very quickly to 1 Peter chapter 3. And let's look at this fourth blueprint for marriage as to why a husband matters. Number four, learn your wife. Learn your wife. Ah, so important, so vital, so crucial, so necessary for us. Look at 1 Peter 3, 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives. I love it. In the Greek, it's just one word. Live in the same house. Dwell together with her. How? In an understanding way. As with someone weaker, since she's a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. What a lesson for us, because this is like the Lord in his great love is saying to us, brothers, don't be passive. I mean, don't just kind of coast through marriage. Don't just get by and roll and just kind of coast through life content with the status quo. Date her. Study her. Enroll in the lifelong degree program at the university of your wife's heart. Because there's always more to learn always more to learn. Very simply, this verse teaches, God's word teaches, that a godly husband, hear this, is a continual learner of his wife. A continual learner of his wife. Husbands, live with your wives. With, with care, yes, yes, learn her with care. Yes, learn her with tenderness. Yes, learn her with respect. Yes, learn her with prayerfulness. Yes, husbands, study your wife with intentionality. Kind of like you did when you were dating her. Courting her. Getting to know her. Tenderly, patiently, pursuingly. I love the book of Song of Solomon. I preached it for our church family and had such a wonderful time studying and heralding this great book. In Song of Solomon, chapter 6 and 7, there is such mutual delight that a husband and a wife have in evidence for one another. And in Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 4, one of the great ways that we see a husband's knowledge of and learning of and care for his wife is he constantly tells her she's beautiful. But it's not just a general statement. You know and I know that's very specific. He tells her in Song of Solomon 6 verse 9 that her love is unique. 
unique. There's nothing like this love. And then in chapter 7, the, the husband, Solomon, gazes upon her. He gazes upon her. And then in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 7, he expresses his passion for her. He's communicating her because he knows her. He's studied her. He's head over heels in love with her. And then chapter 7, verse 10, he has a desire for her. And she knows it. And she knows it. It's such a wonderful picture in that book of Song of Solomon of a man who studies, learns, knows, pursues his wife and grows with her and verbally communicates his affection toward her. So, okay, you say, I, I know that. I know I ought to study her and be with her and spend time with her and, and, and go after her heart and draw out the treasures of her heart. You know that, but how, how do I do that? How do I do that? Well, for us as men, we need to hear a couple of practical guides. Number one, remember to communicate well and communicate openly to her. And maybe your wife loves to talk. But husband, she wants to hear from you as well. She wants to hear your heart, your burdens. Communicate. Another way, husbands, that you can know your wife and learn her well is by providing satisfaction of her her different needs. Knowing what she wants, what she needs, what she desires. Third, by protecting her. You know and love your wife by protecting her. You know and love your wife and learn your wife by assisting her to fulfill chores, responsibilities, that might lighten her load, perhaps even on a particularly difficult day when she doesn't expect it, to know her and love her in that way and lead her in that way. You you can know your wife by allowing her to really share in your heart and your life. Bring her in. Open the door of your heart. Let her know the struggles, the burdens, the trials. You can learn and know your wife by demonstrating to her that apart from Jesus Christ, she has first place in your life. Christ is first. We ought to love him first. Yes. But we also must love our wives. We also ought to learn And know our wives by expressing specific appreciation and praise in large doses. Song of Solomon would be a support for that. Clear appreciation. Not flattery. Hear me out. Not flattery. Proverbs is clear on that. But encouragement. Edifying words. Affirming words. Words that would encourage her along. And so as we're here and we're thinking about why a husband matters and we we think about leading and loving and living the gospel and learning the wife and all of these different points that the word of God just continues to bring out and flesh out for us, maybe husband is a very practical way to think on these things because there's sort of like an overload of information, especially at a day conference or a seminar like this, kind of like overload so much and so much can be forgotten. And how do we prevent that? How do we grow in this? Husbands, I want to give you three simple thoughts and questions to think on and even to ask your wife at some point today, tonight, tomorrow. Number one, to your wife, where can I grow in my Christ-like love? Where can I grow? Now, I'm not, I'm not asking, can I grow? Bad question. Where can I grow? I know I can. Tell me where. Where can I grow in my Christ-like love for you? A second question, husbands, that maybe you could chat with your wife about. How can I serve you practically around the house with the children in my leadership? How can I lead you well? Where can I lead you better? Is there an area of our home, spiritually, physically, 
with our finances and our communication. Share with me, where can I serve you practically? And maybe a third discussion point that you could consider is this. Asking your wife, where would you like me to grow in my pastoring of your heart? To your wife, ask him that question. Where can I grow in pastoring your heart? Not, not can I, where can I? Because the assumption is we all can grow, but where? Help me and be clear so that I may pastor you well as the leader of the home. So, does a husband matter? Does does a husband matter? Absolutely a husband matters to God for the joy of the wife, for the stability of the home, for the example of the children, for the honor of the institution of marriage, for the good of society, for the integrity of your own conscience as a man of God, for the happiness of the marriage bond. Absolutely a husband matters. I think a fitting way to draw us to a close is by telling you a story. It's a true story. You and I know from the Bible that Peter was a man radically transformed by the grace of God. Radically transformed. Early church history also affirms that as well. And his wife, Peter's wife, ministered together with him. She ministered with him in cities like Jerusalem, Antioch, Rome, and beyond. Many years later, after Peter wrote his couple of epistles, we know that he was to die as a martyr. He knew that. He wrote of that. And when that happened, we learn from records in early church history that Peter's wife was right there with him. As Peter was being prepared for the executions, for his impending death, his wife, His wife, also slated for her execution, she at one point was brought right in front of him. And according to the second century church leader, Clement of Alexandria, we read this. When Peter saw his wife led away to death, Peter was glad. That her homeward call had come, and that she would be returning home. When she was being brought before him, Peter spoke to his wife in the most encouraging and comforting tones, addressing her by her name, and then saying this as she was brought by, My dear, remember your Lord. Peter, after he said that, was nailed to the cross on which he would spill his blood as a witness to the gospel. And then he was turned upside down, as you know. His wife, his wife, saw one last glimpse of him. But when she saw him, she didn't see him as a man who was any longer focused on his own desires, his own agenda, his own plans. She saw him as a loving husband, willingly dying for the sake of his Lord. And even in that moment of his death, encouraging his wife to stay faithful even to the very end. Right before they died, Clement says, Peter reminded his wife of the love of Christ when he said to her as they were dying, we are returning home. We're returning home. Even, I mean, even at the very end of Peter's life, he loved her. He led her. He served her. He pictured the gospel as he related toward her. Even until the day, the hour that she went home to heaven. This is why. A husband matters. Amen. Father, thank you for your word that you have given. Thank you for the clarity of your word. It's one thing, O Lord, to hear the word of God, but now we want to be doers of the word of God. On the one hand, the words have been spoken, but now we need to hear it and live it 
and apply it and implement it. By your help, Holy Spirit, and by the enabling grace that you supply, which is always sufficient, would you help the men of God here to live out the calling and the role that you have so clearly laid out in the scriptures for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.